Hey podcast, what's good? You're about to listen to the second episode of the How to Indigenous Governance and Diplomacy for the Now webinar series. Super excited for this all to manifest and hopefully um, that it will guide you or give you some insights, some tools, some ideas for um, indigenous advocacy, whether it is about creating your own indigenous government or uh, whether it is going about um, truth and reconciliation, whether you are interested in the enhanced participation process or whether you are interested in uh, constitutional recognition. There's just a lot of this in there. I uh, hope you find value in it. Um, one heads up though, um, my good friend Tanya Periona, she will be speaking in Spanish. We, are, uh, we were unable to uh, dub it in English. Uh, I apologize for that. That's why it took a little bit more time actually to upload this, but we could not wait any longer. You guys were hungry. You wanted everything in podcast form. So that's why we're uploading this right now in raw format. Um, any any hot takes, any ideas, any feedback, um, you know what to do. Tweet me at GoMaluku and um, yeah, definitely enjoy. This is the GoMaluku podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Jocabet Solano Miselis from Cunadule Nation in Panama, working in memory indígena, indigenous memory. I'm born at the time my people celebrate the time of Barduni. This is the time with a very important for our people to celebrate medicinal plants. I will be your moderator for today. Thank you for joining the third episode of this special series how to indigenous governance and diplomacy for the now. Today we are going to talk some of the world leading indigenous people representatives and earliest to discuss perspectives and practical ideas of this important topic. They are all leaders in their respective field and commit to inspire and empower indigenous people around the world. Some quick things. The webinar series we recorded and reported for the Komalaku podcast. Please engage with each other in this conversation through the chat or comments. Let each other know that what your answer will be to a question of if you have heard a good quote. Please help us keep the conversation going on Twitter. Hashtag how to indigenous now. And you can tag Gasali in your post, Gomaluku. Feel free to share any question, screen, shot, or feedback. We hope you enjoy episode two of the webinar series. The next episode will be tomorrow, Saturday, July 25th, 2 p.m. GMT plus two, with eight new guests from all over all over the world. You can see it up right now, go to link we thank the interpreter for their amazing support the guests for sharing their thoughts and time and the partners in the special series thomas asla d-o-c-i-p drumbeat media and tv indigena please help us keep the conversation going on twitter how to indigenous now and thank you for watching and hope to see you tomorrow Gasali, how are you? How are you? How do you doing? How do you feeling today, knowing we have a special guest in this time? 
these people have a lot of experience in the struggle coexisting in defense of the rights of the indigenous people. Um, I'm doing very well, uh, thank you. And thank you for, for helping me host uh, this whole thing. Um, episode one was already very interesting. And then we have eight new guests um, already lined up for, for this one. And then, like you said, um, the next one will be tomorrow. Um, so, yeah, very excited. I'm, I'm telling it everyone, like I'm super excited for, for all this to happen. Um, I, got on, er, I got up early this morning, actually, um, because um, one of our guests, uh, she had uh, uh, Claire Chartis from Aotearoa. She um, wasn't able to be, because it's now like almost two in, an, in the night in, in New Zealand. Um, so uh, I had to get up early in the morning um, and to pre-record her segment. She really wanted to do this, but she couldn't. She has kids and uh, young kids, um, so she had to. Um, so we did it early in the morning. Um, so I'm also very excited for that. And um, yeah, what, what do you expect? How, um, any any thoughts? Okay. Or yeah, yeah. and then. Uh, we are very excited for have these wonderful people here in this webinar now. And then we want to introduce our first guest now. We're exciting. Uh, this leader very inspirational around the world. Our first guest is Jocelyn Tin Hun Chen. Sorry for the pronounce about your name. Tuhi. Uh, Martujados, the Winder public now is a Jocelyn from the Casabacan community of the Pino Yuman people in Taiwan. She was the co chair of the Global Indigenous Youth Caucus, founded the LIMA, L I M A, Taiwan Indigenous Youth Working Group, in 2013, with the vision to connect indigenous youth across the borders and continents since. In 2014, she also started to work as an indigenous journalist. Gasali. Yeah, I'm so, super excited for to, for having Jocelyn um, on this on the show. Um, like, to be honest, like one of the first uh, names that came into my mind when I wanted to do this uh, has a very interesting story to share from a Taiwanese, not only from a Taiwanese point of view, or, sorry, indigenous Taiwanese point of view, uh, but also from a point of view of, um, yeah, um, indigenous youth, perseverance is, is something that comes to my mind uh, when I think about Jocelyn. Um, Jocelyn, how are you doing? And what time is it over there in, in, in Taiwan? It's uh, around eight in the evening. It's just because I'm actually in Ali Mountain. It's one of the famous mountain we have. And here is, of course, indigenous territory. And I'm here for a, a young talent training program for international participation. And actually, if you want to see, I'm at a, park, a parking lot <laughs> under a street pole to see, so I can have the light. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because it's actually a cultural night tonight for the young the youth, and also with this program, they invite the ambassadors uh, in Taiwan to join their cultural night. So they are having a party there, and so I'm going to join them after this talk. That's why I have to be outside, you know, because it's too loud inside. Oh, well, thank you so much. <laughs> let me let me, let me jump in right in, into the first question. We're going to go back to them. Um, like I said, inspiration for a lot of indigenous youth. What advice would you uh, would you give to young indigenous students or youth 
struggling to struggling to decide what uh, what to pursue in life because um, I know that there's a lot of indigenous youth out there struggling with that that can also benefit their community. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, actually, I just got this one inspiration from an uh, elder the other days. He was telling us that as indigenous peoples. For a very long time, because of all this colonization, because we are different from the mainstream, so we are so afraid to be the perfect one. We don't want to be perfect, we just want to be normal, we just want to be ordinary, because then we will not stand out, people will not notice us so much. So this is something really like hit me in heart, you know, because that's so true when I was growing up, I was told all the time that you should not be so different. You should be, you know, just like the others. Don't ask questions and don't argue with the teachers. And also try to get um, a whiter skin because I'm brown. And, uh, you know, in a lot of con uh, cultures, if you have brown skin, it's not pretty. It's not, that means that you are from a lower class in the society. But now I really, you know, find out find that we were, in a very long time we were so afraid of being perfect but now what i would like to give this uh it's not only for the young people but also for myself oh my i'm still young i consider myself still young anyway <laughs> but anyway i think it's very it's really the time for us not to hesitate to be the perfect one and also because once we are not afraid of being the perfect one we will find a way to really present ourselves. We will really, you know, um, not afraid to be so different. That means we can really uh, show the people that we speak different language, we think differently, we see things differently, and we respond to challenges. We respond to the, um, uh, uh, for example, like natural disasters differently. So just you know, be brave and be perfect. And we are perfect anyway. It's just for a very long time, we are hidden and we are trying to hide from, every, uh, from others to recognize that actually we are perfect. Uh, Jocelyn, before, um, before I move on to the next question, what is your Twitter handle so people can tweet, tweet and talk to you? And also, like, and, and um, I, I, I think I forgot to say that, um, you can use the interpretation, by the way, for, the, for this um uh, for this webinar series so just uh, you can see um the interpretation feature so you can just um click on english spanish french yeah. or russian um well, not just for Actually, you but others as well well let me check my twitter i'm not so sure about my twitter handle <laughs> wait hold on a second well while you're scrolling um like like i said perseverance um, you're representative for Indian peoples in Taiwan, and and you've been participating in the UN for like ten years, co-chair of the Global Indigenous Youth Caucus for a very long time, but only have been able to deliver a speech once. Uh, remember that, remember that that uh, very very moment in a close meeting of the Purim Forum, um, whilst others whilst others would have thrown in the towel uh, towel, like years ago, you kept going on for like ten years. Um, perseverance is a key quality in my view uh, in diplomacy uh, what is the lesson that you would like to share and um, yeah would like to transmit to other Indian peoples that that are um, also participating in, in international context 
Well, first, okay, so my, my Twitter handle is um, Jocelyn, J-O-C-E-L-Y-N, Jinumu, J-I-N-U-M-U-T-W. It's very okay. long. I will type it in the chat room. <laughs> sure, yeah, and I'll, I'll show and, it in post, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so as to the question, well, first, actually, it's 50 years, 6, 2006. That was my very first time to the United Nations when I was in college. And uh, so that time, well, actually, I've been uh, delivering statement for several times, but it's not, it's, oh, it's uh, on behalf of the youth caucus. So it's not on my personal, uh, it's not, I, I was not representing myself or indigenous peoples in Taiwan. I was representing the youth caucus or the women's caucus. And yeah, in 2016, I think that was the time. That was the very first time I was able to say my name and tell people that I'm from Taiwan. And yeah, I, I, I was really representing myself and also the group of youth uh, who were supporting me at that time. And uh, so, well, of course, it's frustrating that, uh, for example, I think Tanya also know about that. There's a time that the, the statement of the youth caucus would be checked because they need to make sure that we didn't mention Taiwan in the statement. They have to make sure that you know, people will not know there's the Taiwanese or there are some Taiwanese indigenous um, uh, that is uh, mentioning in the statement. But I would say for me, patience is important. So, and also we are not doing that for our personal interest. It's for overall, like a lot of indigenous people around the world, we are suffering with the same issues, especially the young people. You know, we are really encountering similar situations, similar challenges. So even though with the statement, we cannot say directly it's from this situation is in Taiwan, but it's actually all the situation we have mentioned, all the recommendations we have proposed are about us. It's about us. It's not, you know, it's, it's also, uh, we also participate in the process of discussion. We come up with all these statements, these recommendations all together. So I will say sometimes it's from the holistic point of view that we are there and we have been there. It's just, so I, I will say that for me, it would not be a problem that I cannot uh, tell people my name at the, at the uh, for example, like the conference room, but a lot of people know me because we are active in other perspective anyway. We are, we are making people to notice us by other means. So, and also I know that, uh, you know, if we want to achieve a goal, there are a lot of different uh, steps. We cannot just go over 100 steps to, the, the final line. We have to go one by one, and maybe that will take many years, but as long as I can see we are making progress, it's encouraging enough. And I have to say, I'm, I, I'm very lucky. I have friends, I have partners like Gonzali, like Tanya, like Thomas, and also we have strong supporters like Kenneth. Kenneth has been really like, supportive to us. So I think still, even though we have this kind of situation, but we are very lucky that people, they, they care about us. They want to know about our situation, our issues, and also they try to include us in the discussion. So yeah, I think that's 
that's some that's more meaningful than being called at the, the conference room without being able to say something true. Um, all right, uh, so um, a couple of things in there that are very interesting. And um, so like trying to get, get your voice out there, uh, perseverance, being creative in terms of trying to get your message out there. What a lot of people don't know is that you're like, you're a, you were or you are a TV, ho were a TV host in, in Taiwan. Um, like, I assume that's also like a way of getting the message, like experiences and everything out there. What do people think about uh, of what you did and how did digital media change the commu your, your community? Uh, well, first, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm no longer working with a TV station anymore, but still, I, I I'm still quite proud of myself about my work, what I have done. So uh, one thing we did is very experimental. It's just something like this now that we invite like young, like indigenous youth who might be just not in high school and who have never had experience with media. But what we see is that they are really doing something good for their community, even though it seems like the thing seems really minor. For example, like I have one guest, they are hosting these uh, basketball games in the community. And people will think, what's that to do? What's a basketball game to do with indigenous peoples? Well, that's a very effective way to attract teenagers to stay in the community and also to make friends with other teenagers in the community. So it looks very minor, but it really changed the community a lot because you know, then the young people, the youth, the teenagers, they will gather. And besides uh, playing basketball, they will also talk about what happened with their family, what happened in the community. And also when it comes to the, the, the ceremonies, the rituals, they will also be there because, you know, if it's just one teenager, he or she will be really shy. But if it's a group of teenagers, no, they will be, they will be brave. They will like to you know, go around as a group. So this is something I did with my, uh, one of my TV programs. And even though this program was uh, this program was closed in 2017, but until now, three years after, I still I can I still meet some young people. They were they are still talking about this program because it's encouraging to them. It really showed them that it doesn't matter if some if you know if we want to say that we are trying to work in or to advancing our rights. It's not necessary to be, you know, involved in politics or to be on the street to protest. It can be as minor as just, you know, uh, I stay in the community. I take care of the elders. You know, I, I learn my own language. And that's something very important. But we, tr we tend to, I don't know, think it's too minor. So it's not that important. But it's not true. It's the, the base. The, the base of everything. Yeah, and, we, uh, like we have, a, we have a very romantic view of, of stuff like that. So it's, it's very good. Thank you, thank you so much for, for highlighting that. Sorry. Yeah, and you say the digital media? Uh, well, I think that's something in a way beneficial, but in other way very dangerous, of course, because you know, with all these smartphones, we can be media ourselves, like with, the one, with our uh, Twitter or Facebook, we can make films, we can, you know, make news as well. 
But then, of course, that will make it a lot easier for us to transmit the message. And it will be a lot easier for us to connect with each other, even though that I'm, I don't live in my community, but still, because this uh, social media or this uh, digital media we can use, we are very close. But of course, the danger is also there is that there are a lot of fake news. And, uh, and because of this, uh, all these media, sometimes it's difficult for us to, to tell if it's fake news or if it's, you know, it's the truth. So especially for our, um, uh, our elders, you know, because every time when there's a crisis, for example, COVID-19, there are a lot of rumors online. I think it's everywhere, there's something like this. A lot of rumors online, uh, on, uh, on, yeah, a lot of rumors, and then we have to create more videos, more messages, more news on our digital media to transmit it, to clarify those rumors. So, but I will still say that, uh, uh, and uh, if we look at a, a holistic way, the development of digital media is very helpful for indigenous uh, community because then we will have the way to make us heard and also we can interpret the messages ourselves and we decide what kind of sentence, what kind of information we want to present. Instead of like before, we only have all this mainstream media, then they are the one to decide how they are going to interpret our culture. And a lot of times, of course, there are a lot of mistakes, stereotypes, or they only look at one part of our culture and uh, neglect the rest of it. So yeah, it's just, it's helpful, but of course dangerous. We have to be cautious about that. Sure, um, uh, Jocelyn, I know we're running a little bit out of time, but I wanna give you like 90 more seconds. Uh, what have we not touched upon that you're proud of, curious about, uh, want, want other indigenous peoples to think about? Anything that comes up in your mind? Again, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> what have we not touched <laughs> upon um, that you're proud of, curious about, or want other Indian people to think about um, for the last 90 seconds? Um, well, many final message, maybe. Oh, difficult. Okay. So uh, now I'm working in politics. And one thing that I really realize is that, you know, we always think indigenous people, we need to have our, we are our own politicians. But once we have our own people in the politics, out of something, we keep distant from them or we, trans we change our support to them to only demand. And that's really something I am struggling now that a lot of people, they, they support me to go into politics. But once, just like now, I'm in politics, all the support becomes demands. They're asking me to do this and that, but and I need advice because, you know, in politics, you need talent and also you need to be trained. I'm still in the training ship as a politician, but I, I really feel lonely because I don't have so much support anymore because they think you are on the other side, you know? So, so what I want to say is that I think Tanya might be will have the same <laughs> experience and I don't know but anyway what I want to say is that we of course we have to have someone in the politics 
in the mainstream politics, not only indigenous politics, but mainstream politics in the government, in the parliament. Also, we have to go with them in this process. We have to accompany them. We have to support them. It's not that they are very lonely. And that's also why a lot of politicians, indigenous politicians, once they are inside the room, they might, you think they changed. It's also because they are too lonely. They are too helpless. So sometimes they lost their direction. So I would say that that's something I would like to share finally that, you know, just don't, of course, we will have different expectations to indigenous politicians. Just don't forget, they are also our people. We, in, other, in uh, a lot of ways, we should also support them and stay with them. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. Um, I, I, I can hear people already uh, singing it now, so like, I think they, they want yeah. to back uh, with them. Um, thank you so much for your time, and um, definitely like, we'll, we'll keep in touch and, and talk more about everything Bye. that you're working on. Okay, thank you. Thank you so Bye. much. Bye. Hoka, um, who's next? Thank you. Uh, the next guest is Claire Charters. Dr. Claire Charted is an associate professor at the University of Oakland Law School. Claire's primary area of research in indigenous people rights in international and constitutional law, often with a comparative focus. She has worked extensively on indigenous people rights at an international level, including for the United Nations Office of the High Commissioners for human rights, and as, a, as an advisor to the United Nations President of the General Assembly. All right. Um, so, uh, like I said in the, in the intro, like uh, she um, uh, she wasn't able to to be live with us, so we pre-recorded um, the uh, the fifteenth the segment with um, with Dr. Claire Charters. So um, here it is. Sorry about that. I'll just have to figure out like the how the whole sound thing works. And I think it should work, right? Kowea, which is also an iwi in uh, central uh, North Island. Um, I, it's it's really funny having questions like that because I don't certainly don't see um, myself as as someone that one should particularly look up to actually, and and I think about um, the people particularly the women who have guided um, me and guided um, in the indigenous movement who, who um, have 
made such a tremendous contribution um, and I think about their qualities um, and I guess um, some of the qualities that I've admired in, in those women and, I, and something I, I hope that I can emulate to some extent is a level of um, persistence and determination I think um, uh, there are unique issues I think facing um, indigenous women and they are not the same across different regions um, but I think that determination is is really important that that idea that um, if you set your mind to a particular goal um, that you persevere and I think you see that coming through in, in the indigenous movement generally um, but also with particular characters like um, I think of Andrea Carmen, for example, I think of Mirna, I think of, you know, lots of them. I shouldn't start daily, I shouldn't start naming Vicky. I, should, I really shouldn't start naming because it, it's, um, the, list is, the list is long. Um, but I think in the Indigenous movement, um, we've outlasted many of the state delegates just because we're not doing this as a job particularly. Also, for some of us, it is a job too. But it's not. You're not. Your motivation is not. But not employment. Your motivation is indigenous people's rights, and so the determination pays off. And you might have um, moments, and I can certainly remember moments in the declaration negotiations where it just seemed futile, and you weren't going to get anywhere, and you couldn't see a way through. And then suddenly there'd be some unexpected breakthrough, and it might have been because particular delegates on the state side changed and then you had a new dynamic or policy might change. And so I think that determination is something I would really stress. Um, I see that now in, um, in the enhancing Indigenous people's participation at the UN process, um, which has been a really rocky road and it's not finished and we haven't yet achieved what, what we want to achieve. Um, but I think the determination will pay off um, in, in the end. Um, because you're arguing for what is just and what is right. Um, and I think trying to be positive at the end of the day, <laughs> it might be small steps and then the surprise big step, um, but at the end of the day, if you persevere, that, that justice and the arguments will all win over. You, you, um, touched, upon, you touched upon enhanced participation. Yeah. Um, as a PGA advisor, and thank you so much for, yes. for, uh, for doing that as well. Really appreciate uh, sure. it for that. It was um, a privilege. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, hopefully you continue um, in, in the process, of course. Last year's, um, yeah, like last year's NF participation has been very challenging. Um, yes. um, anything that you think, just your thoughts, your observations, any yeah. people should do to turn that around? Um, yes, I think we need really cohesive cross-regional support and energy. And that's a hard thing to ask for. And one thing that I've noticed as a change in the Indigenous movement is that Indigenous advocates are spread quite thinly across a range of issues, be it human rights, be it climate change, be it, you know, whatever the issues will be. Sorry about the noise in the background. Um, but I think that if we can galvanise sufficient Indigenous support cross-regionally um, and sort out our own internal issues first so that they, don't, they can't be exploited by states who are 
um, less uh, enthused by the mm -hmm. idea yeah. of greater participation, then I think we'll get a lot further. Um, so, for example, there's been a tension um, between, I think, particularly North American um, and Māori, for example, Indigenous peoples from those states who really have some traction within their states because it's, it's not participation is something that those states support. Um, but there are states, I'm thinking especially of Asia and, and some of Africa, where there's complete and utter rejection of greater participation, particularly in the in the GA. So I think if Indigenous peoples in all those regions can come together and very strongly sort out what our internal issues and the differences are and have a strategy around um, that, that we will get a lot further. Um, and we do have, as Indigenous peoples, different um, objectives. Increased participation at the UN is, is, for some Indigenous peoples, not necessarily a priority because there are other pressing priorities, be they domestic or other pressing priorities at the international level. You know, I named some other issues ongoing, like climate change clearly is, is an important one. Um, so, yeah. We, we need to work together in that way. And that's quite hard now at the moment with um, with um, travel restrictions and that kind of thing. But I do wonder, and I was, I've been reflecting on this over the last um, week actually, I do wonder whether the sort of coronavirus era might be something that we can use um, in a... I mean, I don't want to say positive way because there's not there's nothing much positive about coronavirus at all, but whether there's an opportunity there to get some traction at the UN when people are thinking about other things, and sometimes that's um, not a bad thing to do. And there have been some leaps made when sort of a little bit under the radar, um, and I wonder whether we can do something there and that requires coordination too and there's some tremendous leadership coming through which i've been heartened to see um thank you so much for that because i 100 agree with what you're saying one more question to pick your brain a little bit more about pj about your role as a pj advisor yeah. um so you, you, what can people learn from how you interacted with the states as an advisor like what you what did you see and yeah. what is this one thing that you would like to yeah, convey or transmit to other Indigenous peoples? I'm not sure if I've got one thing. <laughs> what have got a few things, but... Um, mm, there's lots of things going through my mind. Um, one thing... So I was a co-Indigenous co advisor with another three advisors, but another Indigenous advisor, which was um, James Anaya. Um, I think he and I tag teamed quite well on the good cop, bad cop kind of um, role in, in dealing with states. Having someone like Jim and I meant that you had the, the, the um, kind of legal authority, like yeah. the, it's, it's, he's the, probably the, the most well-known international lawyer on Indigenous people's rights globally. So having his expertise in what we would call mana um, was really um, important. Um, I think one thing that in that 
in that sort of the, the four of us working together, we could we could take on particular roles, and 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 so the state advisors were obviously were a lot better in kind of dealing with the states directly. Jim and I took more of a role in in liaising, I guess, between indigenous groups and state groups. Um, I think you have to build on relationships with states. And then in some cases we had, and I would, would say with a couple of delegates, the relationships weren't that good and you had to invest a lot of energy in trying to have a, a, to communicate with one another. And, and, and But a lot of people take it really personally. And I think that was a hard lesson for me to learn was that not to take it personally, but to keep building and trying to maintain relationships. So there's a few ideas in there, I think. Um, but the process wasn't terribly, I mean, was it, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was unsuccessful. I think we made a lot of ground. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the, what, in, in this most recent process, I think the states who were um, less enthusiastic about, or downright, downright um, objecting to increased enhanced participation for Indigenous peoples, um, they were very clever at coming together um, and um, exploiting issues around the definition of Indigenous peoples, exploiting um, issues around the sort of state-centric nature of the of the United Nations. I mean, you're trying to you're trying to get into a club, if you like, that is state-centric, and it's those very states that have colonised and oppressed Indigenous peoples. Like, there's some deeply structural problem an issue there and they were very good at exploiting that so you have to try and I think in the future it'd be good to realize that and strategizing together in a way to to come up with arguments that respond to that well and um this is a different question and I think that I think that this is to be very um interesting maybe a little bit fun for you as well um, honest assessment um, or like your thoughts on Indigenous people's sovereignty. Um, yeah. What do you see? Um, what would you like to see? Maybe that's a better question. And yeah. maybe well, like, what's the first step that Indigenous peoples can take on that? Um, so on the sovereignty question, I'd prefer to focus more on Aotearoa just because I wouldn't yeah. want to speak or, or have no real authority with respect to other um, indigenous peoples um, claims to sovereignty. I, I think um, in Aotearoa um, well, well, I don't know actually where to start in a way, but in, in Aotearoa um, there is a big movement to, for, for, for greater sovereignty. There always has since since the first time of colonisation. I think we're really coming to a point where there's some willingness um, to entertain fundamental constitutional transformation when there's realising the sovereignty that was guaranteed under our Treaty of Waitangi. And I think that is, um, that's come up because it's a question of, of time and people realise that New Zealand's constitutional structure remains illegitimate until there's recognition of, of Māori sovereignty and recognition of that in some way. Um, you know, there's, every, every, every day I think it's important to question 
the states claim to absolute sovereignty and to assert sovereignty and 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 i in the coronavirus era what we did see was um maori asserting sovereignty to protect their own borders around their own around our own tribal boundaries and that was really important and that was that was i think has has led to some advances because the state was quite keen on that because they then um, could focus resources elsewhere. It was, you know, in that confusing time of just trying to protect people um, from getting coronavirus. Um, so that assertion of sovereignty was kind of well received at, at that particular moment. And that was really important and regulation allowed for that. Um, so I can see my daughter coming in. Um, so yeah so the the other thing is is I think with the sovereignty movement is um, to combine with the international movement is really important um, so that it's really important for Māori to be working with other indigenous peoples to see what 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 is what is possible and what is appropriate for forms of sovereignty in 2020 um is it complete absolute independence or is it shared jurisdiction or is it um something or personal jurisdiction over people like what how do how do you realize how do you do that kind of practically to realize our aspirations. One one interesting and difficult um, thing I, I, I feel is that um, we're getting to a stage where um, we stand up and exercise and trying to find those expertise and governance authority and a governance power and to do that well for such a long time because you've been oppressed and colonised. So that's a challenge, I think, for Indigenous people working out how to do that properly. Um, yeah, final question is, like, do you have anything that we, did not, that we did not touch upon that you still want to talk about a little bit more or want any people to think about, maybe? Yeah. Um, I think... Um, I mean, not 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 especially. We've covered some some good ground. Thank you, Ghazali. That's been that's I've, I've enjoyed talking to you. Um, but I think on Indigenous people on the participation um, topic, I think it would be really good um, if we can come together to um, have the energy that we need to progress that issue because I do think it is important even if not obviously for all of or for all indigenous peoples it's not me to speak for other indigenous peoples but I, but nonetheless i do think it's important for all of us um because if we want to get into these structures that undermine um our own sovereignty movements it's really important that you get into those really important state-based clubs and change them because otherwise those structural impediments will continue to be um a barrier um, preventing us moving forward. So I, I think it might not look like it's got any immediate tangible outcomes particularly, but changing the structure is essential for us to really get where we want to go in terms of sovereignty and rights, I think.
Thank you so much, Claire. Um, I'm, I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you go now. Uh, thank, thank you. you so Sorry, much for I want to go and cook those munchkins dinner now. <laughs> so apparently, um, so thank you so much uh, for Claire. If, if you're watching, I, I'm not live, of course, but afterwards, uh, thank you so much for, for uh, being with us. Um, Hoka, um, who's next? Yeah, it's has been challenging and helpful to listen to our sister. We continue to listen with expectation. Our next guest is Kenneth Deere. Deere has been involved in the international indigenous movement since in 1987, when he first attended the UM Working Group on Indigenous Population. He was involved in the development of the Declaration of the Right of Indigenous People until it was passed on development of the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Uh, he attended on the old WCIP permanent forum and spare mechanism meeting since in 1987, plus many UN World Conference. He also has coordinated and chaired the Indigenous Caucus in Geneva and New York for many years. Oh, um, so sorry about that. Uh, thank you so much, Hoka. Kenneth, um, yeah, who does not know Kenneth? Um, Geneva, New York, Bonn, uh, whatever the human Indigenous movement, sorry, the Indigenous People's Movement takes us. Uh, there is Kenneth. Um, try to channel his, his way of um, his gravitas um, in, in meetings. At least that's what I try to do. I don't think it, I'm, I'm very success, successful in that. So thank you for being with us, Kenneth. Um, let me start off directly with the, with the first question because uh, you're kind of like the leader uh, when it comes to the International Indigenous People's Movement. Um, introspective examination of the movements, um, what needs to be improved? Wow, okay, well, thank you for the in, uh, in, uh, introduction. You, you broke up a little bit, so I, I probably missed some of your best words. Uh, the, uh, uh, what was the question? <laughs> Sorry, like, uh, so what do you think of the, uh, our movement, the Inter International Indigenous People's Movement, and what needs to be improved? All right. Okay. Well, first of all, the the movement has has come a long, long way. You know, from when I in 1987 when I first uh, went to Geneva, there was only one one avenue, and that was the Working Group on Indigenous Populations. And uh, and in and in the 1990s and 2000s, that just uh, the avenues just exploded. You know, there were just so many avenues into the United Nations now. You know, you, you know, you have the uh, the Working Group on. Uh, I mean, you have the Permanent Forum, the Extra Mechanism, but you also have you know, you have the, the, the Commission of Biodiversity, uh, WIPO, uh, FAO. You have so many uh, avenues where Indigenous people uh, work on. So it's it's a much much different, um, um, I guess, um, arena. There's so many different arenas now that Indigenous people are 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 are, are taking part in. I generally focus on, on the human rights side. You know, with the with the permanent forum and and expert mechanism and and world conferences and and, and stuff like that. And um, I, I think. Uh, one of the things that we'll, what we call the the uh, international indigenous movement is the, the the word movement is is the key word in that that we have to we have to keep keep moving, and and we can't uh, look at the the permanent forum and the mechanism which was doing really good work and and, and are very very important, uh, but we can't look at them as the ceiling in in, in indigenous participation. Uh, you know we have to we have to look beyond 
and the next the next uh, levels up, you know, the permanent forum, it still has to report to ECOSOC, and ECOSOC still reports to the to the General Assembly, and we have to get uh, access in, at, at those levels, and that's why the uh, the whole uh, campaign on on enhanced participation of Indigenous people is so important, you know, you know, because we have to look beyond uh, the mechanisms that that exist right now, and uh, and build on those and and, uh, and go forward, you know. Well, one of the um, uh, aspects of the permanent forum that uh, that uh, that was disturbing uh, this year was the uh, how states have uh, manipulated uh, the membership of, of, of the permanent forum, um, and where the uh, where the chair of the Economic and Social Council, I think they changed like uh, twelve or thirteen of the sixteen members of the of the permanent forum, and, and that's a problem, you know. Uh, we're here, say from North America, we had a representative there for, for, for three years. We didn't ask for that representative to be changed, but however, the, the, um, the, uh, the president of the Economic and Social Council de uh, decided to, to, to rotate our, uh, uh, the, the expert from, from North America. And, uh, and, and that's a problem for us. And it happened in other regions where we're really good people like Les Melzner, Melzer, who has years and years of experience uh, was three years on a permanent forum, was eligible to stay for another three years. He wanted to stay for another three years. People in, in the Pacific wanted him to stay for three years, but yet the uh, Economic and Social Council uh, uh, moved him out and put, and put some, somebody else in. I, I think that's a problem. And um, uh, the Indigenous people have to have a greater say and a greater control on who we feel the ex our, our experts uh, uh, should be at, at these at this level, and so so I think that's that's a problem. I don't know if we if we can um, change the resolution uh, that uh, it, it, that uh, the modalities of the of the um, permanent forum and expert mechanism uh, to make sure that we have a greater say on on who are on these uh, who are on these bodies, and that probably goes across the the whole UN system as well in those kind of positions that we we uh, we we have right, to, Kenneth, be I'm going to do a little bit of a um pardon me go ahead oh sorry no um i just i uh, want to say like i'm going to do a little bit of rapid fire here um just so like there's no bridge between the questions um what a lot of people indian people know is that the haudenosaunee carry their own passports um before people start creating their own of course uh what do you want people indigenous people to keep in mind because uh, th there's a, like a high level of sovereignty and self-determination in there our passport is an identity document, and we really holding a show to use our, our own passport because we feel strongly about our identity, uh, that uh, we are a sovereign people. Uh, the Haudenosaunee is made up of, of, five, of six nations, the Mohawks, Oneidas, Onondaga, Cayuga, Seneca, and Tuscarora. And we don't bear all kinds uh, to Geneva at the League of Nations, we felt that we can't go there as a sovereign people uh, carrying somebody else's travel documents. So in the beginning, uh, international travel, we traveled on our, on, on our own documents and we've seen that, that, that tradition, tradition today. I have my, my passport uh, right here <laughs> and, uh, and uh, it's a difficult thing to do. It's not an easy thing to, uh, uh, to, to uh, if, if, other, if other people are thinking of, of using their own passports, understand that there are some times you will not be allowed to travel. 
There are some countries that would not allow you in. There are some uh, uh, airlines that might not let you board their, their planes. It's, 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 it's difficult uh, and, uh, and, and you have to be uh, firm. And also you, you, there has to be some you know, relationship you gotta have with the, with the, with the country you're, you're with to allow, to make sure that they don't stop or return to your country. It can be difficult. Um, but I, I, I strongly advise it. I mean, I, I, do not, I don't travel anywhere with, uh, unless I travel my Haudenosaunee passport either. If a country lets me in, they let me in. If they don't, they don't. And I don't, I don't go. The way I look at it, if, if a country doesn't let me in, it's, it's their loss. Um, and uh, we, you know, we, we have to you know, be pretty firm on, on, on your conviction to use your own passport. Uh, Kenneth, um, talk, let's zoom in a little bit about diplomacy. Um, um, how do you, what, how do you decipher uh, between a bad diplomacy strategy and that's not working and having a ba bad outcome? Um, any, th any thoughts on that? Because you've been around for a very long time. Yeah, there's no such thing as bad diplomacy. <laughs> there's failed diplomacy, um, I guess. Uh, you know, every every time you, you you do you know diplomacy, you you always try to put your best foot forward. I, I guess there is a, a a thing called called bad bad diplomacy. Um, uh, one of the things that that I, I want to uh, express that was really important about uh, indigenous diplomacy was the indigenous caucus uh, in terms of the uh, in, in the battle for the declaration of the rights of indigenous peoples. One of the, the, the indigenous people we we would meet before. Uh, the working groups, on, uh, either the working group on indigenous populations or the working group on, uh, on the draft declaration. And we would decide among ourselves what our, what our positions are, you know, and, uh, and we would go there in a, in, a, in a united front as much as possible. And, and that had a really big effect and, and impact on, on how we were able to deal with states because we, 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 were, we were unified. States were divided um, because um, uh, the, um, you know, Denmark and Guatemala supported the original draft of the, of the declaration. So, and, and other states didn't. So the states themselves were divided and, and that was good for us. But the, uh, in terms of diplomacy, um, I always felt that uh, indigenous people uh, were real, the best is when, cause we, we have a, a logical uh, uh, arguments. We, uh, we have the high moral uh, ground on issues of indigenous people in terms of our, in in terms of our self determination, lands and territories and, and I'm being interrupted here some, somehow. <laughs> Maybe I'm talking too fast. No, no, no. Okay. okay. So um, I'm hearing the Russian in my in my earphones. Um, so in terms of uh, so in terms of diplomacy, we got to look at it in, in a positive way, and in, in the sense that you always have to maintain the high moral ground on all the arguments that, uh, that, that, that you put forward and maintain that. And that's why we, we don't have to resort to things like, like terrorism, you know, and, and stuff like that. And because uh, I, I think our, our, our arguments are, are, are superior to, to the arguments that, that, that states have. So um, bad diplomacy is, is when, we, uh, uh, when we undermine our own arguments and we undermine our, our own credibility. I think that's bad diplomacy, and that's what you have to avoid. I think the Haudenosaunee has been very strong in uh, in maintaining a, uh, a, a, a what we call a good mind when when we uh, when we only use good words 
with, with, with other people, uh, using uh, uh, reason and rational thinking to, uh, uh, to, to put yourself, to put your arguments forward. And, um, and I think that we, uh, we look at other people as equals. We don't look at states as being superior and other people as being superior. We, are, we look at ourselves as being equal to everybody and not less. And that strength and that inner strength that, um, that, uh, that makes you stronger uh, so that you're not intimidated by, by, uh, by states. Uh, when I go to the UN, and I'm talking not just me, I'm talking about the Haudenosaunee, we're not intimidated by ambassadors and, and, and heads of state and, and, and everything and, and all those, uh, we, because we look at them as equals. And, uh, and so that way we can function and deal with them as, as equals. And, and that might, sometimes that annoys them, and that's fine. Um, and that, that's, that's not bad diplomacy uh, to be annoying. Uh, it's it's what the objective is. You have to your objective is to is to assert your sovereignty, to assert your self determination, and uh, and, and diplomacy mean is how to assert that uh, and getting the most cooperation from the other side. And uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, I I don't always look at things as being bad diplomacy. I, I just look at sometimes failed diplomacy. I don't think that's the bad, the same thing. No, I, th I think you answered my question in more ways than one, actually. So I th thank, you, thank you so much for that. Um, going a little bit deeper into um, self-determination, any insights and myths about that out there about Indigenous self-determination that you want to address? I, I think one of the, the hardest, one uh, self-determination was <clears throat> what uh, held up the declaration for so long uh, because states did not want to recognize our right to self-determination. And uh, one of the things that, uh, uh, that people, uh, I mean, at least some states assumed that self-determination meant sovereignty right, and, and independence. And self-determination doesn't necessarily mean that. Yes, it does mean uh, sovereignty. Yes, it does mean uh, uh, you know, independence, but it also means uh, other forms of self-determination, whether it be autonomy, self-government, uh, you know, uh, domestic dependent, whatever uh, other form that you have a mutually agreed to. And that's the key is to have that relationship that's mutually agreed to between indigenous peoples and states on how to exercise self-determination. But uh, the gover governments resisted the term self-determination because they looked at it as only meaning independence. And it doesn't just mean independence. It means it's included in self-determination. I mean, in self-determination. But it's not the only way to, to define self-determination, as in Article 4 of the, uh, of the UN Declaration. Article 4 doesn't mention sovereignty, self-determination, but it mentions uh, some other ways of also exercising self-determination. But we, what we don't believe, what we still believe that and assert that self-determination does include uh, sovereignty and independence, should we so uh, uh, want to take that political step, which, which is a, can be quite difficult. Um. Talking a little bit more about um, movement and legacy, um, how would you implement your experience, uh, mindsets, uh, kindness, uh, knowledge into the movement and builds onto your legacy for the for generations to come um, for the youth? Well, first of all, I, I, I'm, uh, I'll work backwards. I am always impressed with the youth, uh, uh, the youth caucus at First, the parent forum have it's, it's wonderful to see them speak because they uh, they when they when they take the floor and they speak they they're, they're so uh, 
pure. <laughs> they, they're, they're not encumbered by, they don't have baggage. They, they, they see things sometimes more clearly than, than people, old, grizzled people like old people like me who've been, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, banging our heads against the wall. And, uh, and it's wonderful to see the youth uh, come in because they, they, they you know, they're, they're still innocent. <laughs> so, so if I can use that word, you know, not that we're guilty, uh, but, 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 it, but I, science, I find them so pure and, um, and their energy is, is, is so great and, and, and it inspires us, 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 uh, us older people. I think that um, young people have uh, something to learn still from, from uh, uh, the, the uh, older generation. I think in the terms of diplomacy, uh, how, to, how to deal with states, uh, how to, um, you know, uh, uh, um, making sure you keep the high moral ground. You know, don't get distracted by uh, extremism. Uh, like like terrorism would be would be that that extreme, and some people can be pulled into that into that mindset. I, I think that we have to make sure that that uh, uh, that indigenous young people remember the spirituality of our of, of our people and, and keep that. And, and I see that. I'm, I'm not saying that they're not doing that. I see that in the youth, but I'll, to make sure they, they 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 maintain that that international work is is holistic. It's not just a bunch of uh, lawyers. Uh, doing doing this work, and it's not a you know you know a bunch of activists, but uh, it's it's holistic. You you have the men, you have the women, you have the youth. You know you have the people with disabilities. You you have uh, you you have elders. You, you know you have um you know, uh, and uh, you you have your your um your spiritual spiritual component, your legal component. You got to put all these things together to uh, uh, to to move yourself forward. It's a holistic approach. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, I, I would encourage the, the youth to make sure they, they maintain that, uh, the youth and the elders, the men and the women uh, going forward together in, in, in all of these, uh, in these forums into the future. Um, I think that we have a lot, uh, a long way to go yet. I think we, we're still, up, it's an uphill battle and it's a struggle. And don't give up. Uh, I think uh, working in the UN can be very, very frustrating and it's very slow. I always tell people the UN moves at the speed of a glacier, but it does move and you have to be patient. And in terms of climate change, glaciers are moving faster. So you look <laughs> at it that way, you know, so the UN is, is moving and, uh, and, we, and we have to have that, that patience. It's not just enough to go to the United Nations and, and make the big speech. You know, we, we all do that. We all, we all make the, you know, the big bring back the Buffalo speech. And uh, but it's it's the law. It's, it's the grinding it out. It's it's the it's going back and back and back and grinding out the little things. You know, fighting for those little words. You know, in 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 uh, in resolutions and and outcome documents. You know, it's it's uh, it's the grinding out work that that uh, the young people have to understand that the success of the of the the declaration and other uh, issues is is the grinding out. It's it's the it's it's the it's, it's the uh, it's the the back room and the coffee shops and the hallway lobbying uh, that, that that gets success in, in the United Nations. Um, any final thoughts, uh, Kenneth? That you want to share something that we we did not touch upon? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you sort of exhausted me already. Uh, no, but um, uh, um, I just want to say that I think what we call the international indigenous movement is a real thing. And that although it's scattered, uh, I think that um, uh, I, I, uh, you know, I, I have my, my, I have concerns, in, 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 particularly in North America. We don't, we no longer have a North American Indigenous Caucus, and, and I think that's a concern. Uh, there should be one. Uh, 
And, um, and the, uh, uh, I think that uh, we have to continue to build on, on, our, uh, on our solidarity and, and working together. Uh, well, one of the concerns I do have, and I, going back to, again to the Indigenous Caucus and, and the old guys, the old people, is that I see a less participation from those with deep experience in, in the caucuses at the permanent forum and expert mechanism. And they seem to skip the caucus and just go to the meeting. And I think that's a mistake. I, I think the, some of the, the, the people with, uh, with a long experience have to maintain their presence uh, at, at, at these caucuses and, and, uh, and guide them and, and help them and, and help them. It doesn't mean they have to you know, be in the front but they have to guide the young people who are trying hard. The, the old people, the younger, the older generation of people who fought for the declaration, uh, to the young people, they're legendary. The, uh, the, from what I hear and people are telling me, they, they, they hear about the, the, the hard work that they did, that working on weekends, working in the evenings, making these joint statements and, and, and presenting them to the, to, uh, at the UN. The young people hear about that and they want to emulate that. And for them to emulate that, well, they, has, they still have to learn, you know, from our experiences and, and, and how to do that and when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate. Because I, I think that the, uh, the, there are some, uh, the UN has changed a bit. And, uh, and what, what we were able to do years ago might not be able to be accomplished today because of the structure of the agenda or the structure of, of, of meetings and a caucus has to adjust to that. And they sometimes they need some experience there to, to uh, uh, that old experience uh, to, to guide the, the, the caucuses and to guide the youth and the younger people. People like yourself, Kasali, and all, I'm so impressed with the, all of these young, young people who were youth leaders are now, now leading. That's the next generation of, of leadership that's, 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 that's carrying it, 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 the, the issues forward. So I wanna just remind the, that uh, you know, we, we, I, I wanna make sure that the Indigenous Caucus is strong and, and, and balanced and with, with all the, the, the people with experience and, and the new people and all those in between are going forward together. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Kenneth, um, for, for your time. I see, I see Glenda in the background, so um, say hi to your wife and, and Tom for me, and uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll get to see you soon um, in real life, in person. I don't know where, uh, but really looking forward to it. Thank you so much, yeah. Kenneth. Well, thank you, and thank you for holding this, this, this series. Thank you. Um, Hoka, who's next? Yeah. Uh, so happy to listen our brother Thierry, he has a lot of wisdom and we want to continue to learn more about uh, his job. Well, uh, la próxima, y lo voy a decir en español, the next one is uh, our guest, Tania Pariona. Ella es activista indígena, ex congresista de la República de Perú, ex becaria del Alto Comisionado para los Derechos Humanos, Miembro del Enlace Continental de Mujeres Indígenas de las Américas, ETMIA, E-C-M-I-A, asocia, asociada al Centro de Culturas Indígenas del Perú, Girapac, actualmente responsable del programa de Mujeres Indígenas. Felizmente de invitar a nuestra hermana Tania para que nos comparta su experiencia, luchas, desafíos y sueños. All right, Tanya, this, um, this is going to be interesting. So because uh, my Spanish is as good as my Chinese. Um, so it is not, <laughs> it's not very well. Very good. Um, so let, let me let me go right into it. Um, if you can, if you can answer this question, um, give you the uh, two minutes. Uh, what are you seeing out there in Peru? 
Peru. Um, how are you thinking right now about indigenous rights um, in um, the post, like after COVID-19 world? Sí. Bueno, en primer lugar, quiero agradecer la invitación a Gasali y me honra estar en este webinar junto con personas con muchísima sabiduría como Kenneth, hermanas como Socavet y líderes que han transitado por las Naciones Unidas, tienen un trabajo en sus países, en sus comunidades y todo eso nos da la fortaleza para seguir trabajando también desde donde nos encontramos, en este caso en el Perú. Eh, la situación de los pueblos indígenas es realmente preocupante porque en este contexto de la pandemia eh, se ha exacerbado la pobreza, la desigualdad, también el racismo y la discriminación contra los pueblos indígenas. A los problemas anteriores que teníamos, como los conflictos sociales ambientales, producto de la contaminación ambiental de las empresas extractivas, el despojo de los territorios, la falta de seguridad jurídica. Hoy nuestros territorios están sufriendo eh, esta tragedia de la, de la pandemia. Eh, tenemos miles de, de casos eh, de personas contagiadas, así como fallecidas. Hemos estado elevando nuestras voces para que el Estado peruano pueda tomar medidas acertadas, estrategias de intervención, sin embargo, estas muchas veces eh, no son tomadas en cuenta. Eso no ha significado de que bajemos la guardia, al contrario, los pueblos indígenas estamos eh, mucho más eh, sólidos, eh, interviniendo, proponiendo, generando corriente de opinión pública también, porque en Perú hablar de los pueblos indígenas es hablar de minoría. Y eso es una falsedad, porque en Perú no somos una minoría étnica. En Perú somos una mayoría. Después del censo de población del año 2017, el 25% de la población, es decir, alrededor de 8 millones de peruanos se han autodefinido parte de un pueblo indígena. Entonces no somos minoría. Pero bueno, este contexto de la pandemia también está generando mucha resiliencia, mucha resistencia, eh, mucha apuesta en evidencia además práctica del uso de nuestros conocimientos indígenas para la prevención, para eh, poder atender la, esta, esta enfermedad del virus del COVID-19. Hay hermanos indígenas que han conformado sus pequeños comités de salud para atender a los pacientes y cada uno desde su territorio está haciendo su esfuerzo propio. Y eso en realidad eh, no es de ahora, porque nosotros ya vivimos, como, como lo decía un maestro amazónico, hemos vivido tantas pandemias, enfermedades endémicas que han, eh, bueno, han, han generado muertes de indígenas. En la Amazonía, por ejemplo, el problema de la malaria, el dengue que mata a indígenas cada año y otras pandemias sociales, ¿no? como la, la discriminación y el racismo. Eh, a los pueblos originarios, por su origen, por su lengua, por su condición física, por su pensamiento, por su identidad. Y es algo con el que luchamos permanentemente. Hay cosas buenas, hay cosas también muy, muy malas en este contexto, pero creo que lo importante es aprovechar la oportunidad para generar un cambio de conciencia humana. Hoy por hoy se valora muchísimo lo que tienen nuestros territorios, nuestros pueblos, 
conocimiento, biodiversidad, naturaleza, el rol de la agricultura, la nutrición, la soberanía alimentaria, es algo del cual tenemos que sentirnos orgullosos, por supuesto. Thank you, thank you so much, Tania. And it, it, it's, it's such a strong, uh, um, yeah, um, how, how should I say, like capturing like what, what you're seeing. Um, any, anything, you talked about like the impacts of COVID-19, any opportunities maybe uh, th that you see maybe in Peru or in, in Abiyala, Latin America, uh, that you can see that can be, um, uh, that can improve Indian people's, Indian people's rights uh, and maybe governance and or diplomacy. Yo creo que es una oportunidad para la visibilidad. Es muy triste saber que nos tenemos que visibilizar por la desgracia de tener muertes, de tener desatención del Estado, la falta de alimento en los territorios, etc. Pero creo que tenemos que sacarle la vuelta a este escenario para decir que existimos, que esa desigualdad es la que venimos arrastrando décadas y que el sistema de salud ha colapsado precisamente porque no ha habido inversión y prioridad de atender a los pueblos indígenas con un puesto de salud, con medicina, con educación de calidad. Hoy por hoy nuestros hermanos indígenas escolares en sus comunidades no están llevando la educación virtual como se hace en la zona urbana. ¿Por qué? Porque la conectividad digital es aún muy precaria. Entonces tenemos niños que están retrasando su educación, además a un sistema educativo que ya tenía varias falencias, pero hoy se convierte en una oportunidad para levantar la necesidad de una mejor política educativa intercultural, bilingüe, trilingüe, con maestros formados, con una inversión pública para fortalecer ese sistema educativo que hoy hace falta y que es necesaria para transformar nuestra realidad y para tener mejores condiciones de vida, pero también es una oportunidad para que las, en los poderes donde se deciden las cosas, como por ejemplo el poder legislativo, pueda trabajar, por, eh, eso es una lucha que hacemos, pero pueda trabajar eh, la participación política de los pueblos indígenas. Yo quiero comentarles que en el Perú la participación de los pueblos indígenas es, digamos, a la suerte. Los indígenas que podamos tener suerte de llegar al parlamento a través de un partido político, llegamos. Pero no existe un mecanismo legal para garantizar la representación igualitaria en el parlamento eh, de los pueblos indígenas, tanto hombres y mujeres. Nosotros desde el periodo eh, parlamentario eh, que hemos asumido, hemos dejado varias propuestas legislativas esperando que se discutan eh, estas pues tienen que tener algún tipo de presión social también, intentamos hacer ese trabajo. Eh, yo creo que el reto desde los pueblos indígenas es empezar a reflexionar sobre nuestro rol político en los espacios donde se deciden. Eh, yo he aprendido muchísimo de la diplomacia indígena en el, en el sistema de Naciones Unidas para ponerlas en práctica en mi propia experiencia parlamentaria a nivel nacional. La idea, por ejemplo, de incidir con los decisores mayores, de armar coalición con grupos temáticos, incluso con bancadas políticas opositoras frente a un tema en la que podemos coincidir, es necesaria. 
porque minoritarios somos en el Parlamento, porque no somos más de uno o dos parlamentarios que llegamos a este Congreso. Y no puedes determinar una ley si eres dos personas. Tienes que ser mayoría para calificar que tu voto va a favorecer esa ley. Entonces nosotros estamos en Perú trabajando una reforma político-electoral para tener por lo menos, por lo menos nosotros decimos, entre 10 y 32 asientos específicos para los pueblos indígenas. Y esto es importante ¿por qué? Porque son espacios de donde salen las leyes, leyes que pueden permitir en adelante políticas públicas, pero también porque existimos en el país. No podemos no tener presencia, voz para definir los destinos de nuestra propia vida. Entonces, yo sí creo que es una gran oportunidad para levantar estas demandas, estos sueños, estos desafíos, algo que la prensa nacional no cubría porque no había un escenario catastrófico. Hoy lo estamos teniendo, lamentablemente, pero sobre eso también los pueblos indígenas estamos colocando propuestas, estamos colocando planteamientos viables y factibles. Um, and thank you so much, Tanya, for also highlighting um, all, all that. I have Hoka. She is burning. She has a burning question for you. So, um, Hoka, uh, <laughs> go ahead. Hola, Tania. Eh, mucho gusto. Emociona mucho escucharte, reconocer el trabajo que hacen mujeres como tú a nivel eh, eh, del país en Perú, pero también a nivel regional y mundial. Quizás más mi pregunta va en relación al tema de eh, ¿Cuál propuestas crees que debería este, seguirse trabajando desde los estados para tener este, formas de política más plurinacionales que respeten la cosmoexistencia y cosmovisión de los pueblos indígenas? ¿Y cómo podemos interactuar dentro de estas políticas reconociéndonos, como bien dices, que somos eh, en Perú eh, mayoría y no minoría? de tal manera que las propuestas sean más interculturales desde las políticas. Gracias, Jocabé, por la pregunta. Y creo que es fundamental partir por el reconocimiento constitucional. Si uno no está reconocido en su constitución política como Estado-Nación, y dentro de ella nosotros como naciones pluriculturales, plurilingües, no existimos. Hoy por hoy, por ejemplo, la constitución política del Perú tiene tal vez dos artículos que hacen mención a pueblos indígenas en derechos básicos. Una tiene que ver para procesos de elección regional, pero lo demás es accesoria. Es desde una perspectiva sobre todo cultural, ¿no? No, no discriminación por etnia, raza, cultura, etc. Pero no está reconociendo derechos políticos, derechos económicos, derechos sociales. Entonces, un trabajo que se puede levantar desde las capacidades de liderazgo y, y líderes que tienen muchísima trayectoria y que pueden dar un salto en la política bastante necesaria hoy por hoy, se puede generar este tipo de movilidad, de movilización temática. Y lo otro tiene que ver con la institucionalidad indígena. En un aparato estatal, si no tienes una institucionalidad indígena, lo más probable es que el tratamiento a los pueblos indígenas sean en una situación de marginalidad, porque no eres prioridad ni presupuestaria, ni de decisión, ni de composición de esa estructura. Hay hermanos indígenas que creen que eso 
contraviene contra nuestras propias formas de autogobernanza. Y yo creo que no, porque lo uno no, no anula lo otro. La autogobernanza propia y las formas propias de, de organizarnos en nuestros territorios puede seguir construyéndose y recuperándose y fortaleciéndose como tal, pero eso no implica que no podamos ser parte de un Estado del cual también somos miembros, como peruanos, como panameños, como argentinos, como, como latinoamericanos. Y nuestra ausencia más bien lo que ha generado es que el Estado crea que somos siempre sujetos de asistencia, que necesitamos otras representaciones ¿no? hablando por nosotros. Entonces yo sí creo que la voz propia, la presencia física en estos espacios es fundamental, pero para eso necesitamos conocer cómo funciona el Estado, necesitamos formación política con identidad propia, con esa diplomacia, diríamos, que funciona en el mundo internacional, pero que en el plano nacional puede confluir con nuestras propias experiencias de incidencia mucho más eh, contextualizadas, por supuesto, a nuestras realidades. Y lo otro sí tiene que ver más bien en cómo los pueblos indígenas vamos generando experiencias de buenas prácticas, ¿no? Esto que se dice, a ver, ¿qué, ¿qué de bueno tenemos los pueblos indígenas para que se convierta en política pública? Yo creo que tenemos muchas cosas buenas, en salud, en educación comunitaria, eh, en conocimiento indígena, eh, incluso en literatura, que hoy por hoy la juventud indígena está generando literatura en idiomas originarios, tecnología eh, usada para, lo, como un recurso para fortalecer eh, las propuestas desde la perspectiva indígena en relación a la medicina, creo que es algo del cual quienes hemos vivido en nuestras comunidades recurriendo a la medicina nuestra como primera opción, sabemos de la valiosa, eh, digamos, existencia de esta. Porque yo, por ejemplo, siempre me he curado con plantas medicinales. Muy raras veces he tomado una medicina, una pastilla, y en mi comunidad la gente se cura con medicina natural. Obviamente hoy estamos ante una pandemia que no sabemos cuál es la medicina efectiva, eh, curativa, definitiva, pero que están llevando a investigar incluso esos conocimientos indígenas en nuestros propios territorios para paliar la enfermedad, los síntomas, etcétera, ¿no? Entonces, creo que son esas tres que yo podría decir desde el cambio de las leyes, del marco jurídico a nivel nacional importante, la institucionalidad indígena y las políticas públicas de carácter intercultural, que son tres líneas fundamentales en donde uno puede hacer un trabajo efectivo y demostrar que es posible ser tratado en igualdad en un país en donde hay una diversidad pero que lamentablemente las relaciones de poder y los poderes fácticos se han impuesto como una ideología hegemónica desde la verticalidad sobre todo y la subordinación. Muchas gracias Tania, porque nos das mucho para seguir reflexionando y seguir pensando, pero también trabajando en la incidencia pública. Este, quizás tenemos una última pregunta y tendrías dos minutos para responder la última pregunta y más que nada en relación al COVID-19. Y has hablado un poco sobre el tema del conocimiento, de las sabidurías ancestrales, de la medicina. Eh, de hecho, en mi presentación hablé que nací en el tiempo de las plantas medicinales porque era el tiempo donde mi pueblo, Cunadule, 
este, reconoce la importancia de las plantas para los neles, que son los médicos cunas. Entonces, quiero preguntarte, ¿pudieras compartirnos alguna medicina, algún canto, alguna ceremonia, algún ritual que están haciendo en este momento los pueblos indígenas en el Perú para contrarrestar el COVID-19? Una pregunta más de conocimiento de los pueblos indígenas en el Perú. Sí, Jacobet, en la parte de la Amazonía peruana, nuestros hermanos han conformado su propio comando COVID, eh, comando indígena eh, para la salud. El comando Matico se llama, y seguro algunos de ustedes conocen a, eh, a Néstor Paiva, un hermano Shipibo, que también fue parte de los cursos de Naciones Unidas, y él ha emprendido junto con sus hermanos el comando Matico, que es un comando de salud indígena para en la preparación de medicina natural con hierbas, entre ellas el matico, que es una de las plantas que ayuda a desinflamar cuando tienes la garganta este, inflamada, cuando tienes de repente eh, una infección interna, ¿no? también externa, para lavados externos, eso en el lado de la Amazonía. En la, en nosotros en la parte andina usamos muchísimo este, el eucalipto, el ajos, es, el ajo es común, todo el mundo lo conoce, el jengibre, el kion, eh, la haba, la haba tostada, eh, junto con este limón, que son, digamos, de uso muy común, muy cotidiano para un resfrío, pero que parece que hoy, en esta ocasión de eh, la pandemia, están ayudando justamente a evitar que los casos que tienen síntomas leves lleguen a ser crónicas. Entonces, la gente se está... Eh, empezando a, a, a curarse de esa manera. Y en, en mi región, en Ayacucho, lo que se han empezado a hacer de manera comunitaria son los vaporeos. El, um, este, el vaporeo con hierbas, un conjunto de hierbas, entre ellas este, eucalipto, eh, romero, manzanilla, una combinación de, de varias hierbas en cada casa. Un poco para para purificarnos también, no solo en términos biológicos, ¿no? sino también espirituales. Eh, estas prácticas no siempre son bien vistas, no siempre son valoradas por las personas que, por supuesto, no terminan de entender nuestra cosmovisión, pero, pero somos nosotros. O sea, no es que tenemos que rendir cuentas a quien no, no se siente parte de nosotros, porque en esta ocasión la gente está sobreviviendo y tiene que recurrir a sus medios propios. Entonces yo misma eh, estoy en este momento en la capital de Perú porque me, me quedé aquí, he eh, eh, dado la cuarentena hasta la fecha que no puedo retornar a mi lugar de origen y sin embargo estoy semanalmente, diariamente consumiendo estos jarabes propios medicinales para, para sentirme segura, ¿verdad? Porque bueno, hay que recurrir a eso en estos tiempos. Eso, Jacobet. Muchas gracias, Tania, por tu tiempo. Gracias por compartir también los conocimientos de nuestros pueblos indígenas. Creemos que es muy importante y seguir orando, cantando, haciendo los ritos, las ceremonias. Gracias, Tania, eh, por gracias, tanta doctor. sabiduría compartida también en los temas que nos has compartido hoy. Eh, well, Dinette, eh, brother, eh, he's Graeme Reed, and He's from Anichinabe, he's a mix, Anichinabe and European descent. He works at the Assembly of First Nation leading 
her involvement in federal and international climate police policy, including recently as co-chair of the International Indigenous People Forum of Climate Change at COP25. In his free time, he is completing a, a PhD at the University of Gale, studying the intersection of indigenous governance, environmental governance, and the climate crisis. Thank you for to be here, Casali. Hey, Graham, how are you doing? Um, thank you so much. I know it's very early over there. Um, cool. So uh, let's let's start real quick. Um, so that you can get, get your cup of coffee again. Uh, what's, what's have you changed your mind about in the last 100 days? Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and thanks for this opportunity, Ghazali. Um, it's, uh, it's an honor to be even included in this kind of roster of people. And, and don't worry, I've been drinking enough coffee already <laughs> to, to feel <laughs> good in this. Um, yeah, I guess my... Uh, you know, and reflecting on, on this question, I think two things. Um, one was just really over the last hundred days, I think I, I was kind of reaffirming my belief that the work that, that we do in the climate sphere is actually the exact same thing that we do when dealing with any other kind of structural inequality. And, and by that, I mean, you know, climate just exacerbates and magnifies um, you know, existing challenges that we all face, mostly because of colonization. And uh, similarly, like I see the health pandemic and, and Tanya's points were um, a perfect example of that, how this just kind of, you know, further accelerates the things that we're already struggling for. Um, and I think, you know, what I've been trying to do or reflecting on the last hundred days is, uh, like think about what we can do inwardly. And, and I've been feeling a lot of frustration and engaging in these kind of multilateral processes. And I, I love the points that Kenneth and, and Claire were raising about how do we support the indigenous movement internationally um, and focus on the kind of persistence and you know, relationality between all of our different relatives. So I'm keen on, keen on pursuing that more. And I think spaces like this are are important representations of that. And I, I think like you being a co-chair of the um, Indigenous Caucus under UNFCCC, like at least that's what I did. I just, I just tried things, you know, like a little bit of tasting here and there, uh, see, see what works, see what does not work. Um, I had some difficulties. Let me pick your brain a little bit. How do you create consensus as a chair dealing with the seven regions? Um, do you have a checklist? Um, what questions do you ask yourself maybe? Uh, before making any, or not making, but proposing a decision or, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> in a meeting, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, um, like, I think the point that uh, Kenneth was talking about, just about the starting point, and, and I think the starting point is that, you know, we're all relatives fighting for the same thing, and that, you know, we might have differing opinions on on how to do that, but kind of by acknowledging that you know our, our outcome is shared. Um, I think there's an ability to to figure out and discuss what are the uh, ways to deal that and recognizing that there is diversity. Um, I think you kind of alluded to it. Uh, the I think the role of the chair uh, is often to kind of stand with or stand behind folks, and uh, that kind of um, for me 
feels like, you know, really I'm just trying to create the space for dialogue between regions and, and the dialogue between regions um, requires like work. <laughs> it requires like building relationships with people. It requires kind of ongoing check-ins outside of, you know, main uh, meetings to make sure that folks can can air what, what they have at the top of their mind. Um, and also just acknowledging that, you know, there are differing personalities and ways to communicate the things that they feel. And, um, you know, opening up space for that is, is really important. And, you know, so I guess those are kind of check-ins and, and making sure that, that everybody's had the ability to, to, uh, to share what's important to them and then thinking about something that's joint is, uh, yeah, is challenging. Like we and um, for for full disclosure, so people know, uh, within the unit triple we only have one hour in the morning to be able to coordinate with one another, uh, which is very challenging um, to be able to yeah, to, to li listen to all the voices. Um, how do you deal with it, and like how do you um, try to facilitate all that in one hour? Yeah, very difficultly, um, but I mean I think. You know, I think recognizing that it is an hour is just a way to kind of scope and prioritize what people are sharing and, you know, make sure that what we do is, is we essentially set out those other processes for things to get in more detail. And so I think of the one hour as more of just like a, an overview um, sharing type of circle. And then the kind of substantive work occurs throughout the day in smaller groups, and then we bring it back. Um, and so it's just about kind of understanding that, that cycle of kind of work, report back in kind of accountability that I think, you know, the caucus looks for in, in these sorts of forums. Um, all right, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about like perspective, uh, what the hell, perspective and perception uh, of, of a caucus. Um, any, um, I asked this to Carson, when he was uh when he was as a youth chair um biggest misconception myths or something that you want, would like to uh talk about how easy or hard it is not probably how hard it is to lead a caucus yeah um i think you know the misconception is is that you actually lead a caucus um and and like i don't i don't necessarily see that as the role like it's really about like how do you coordinate facilitate and empower people to to do the things that they want to do and and i think everybody comes to these spaces to you know articulate a concern that they have back home to call on more action and then i see the role of kind of a co-chair as just like opening up the space to do that and kind of figuring out where and how we can position people in those places of conversation um, instead of like really taking space and then speaking on behalf and so i've tried really hard to to not do that and tried really hard to uh you know get our youth involved get our elders involved and uh draw on their knowledge and experiences and, and allow them to share i do think like you know one of the misconceptions in any sort of characterization of a, of a caucus is that like there's an assumed uniform uniformity it's like everybody because we're indigenous has the same perspectives and i think like it's it's really important to kind of counteract that the un 
you know, there's seven regions, each of which have their own kind of self-determination process, even within regions. And, and we heard with Claire, even within, you know, within what's currently known as Canada, within First Nations, there's a massive diversity of perspectives. And so giving, uh, giving space for that, I think requires, you know, agreeing on those kind of minimum standard principles and then allowing people to elaborate based on the context that, that they're entering that space in. Yeah, because like a caucus is like a UN actually within a UN. Uh, at least that, that, that's how my perspective is. Yeah, like it is nothing totally. different than um, a, a COP or a general assembly. And you're at the helm of it uh, to facilitate, not to dictate, of course. Uh, thank you so much. Because like there's a lot of, there is perspective out there that like, like as a caucus leader or like in a leadership role, yeah, you have to like dictate. And I'm, I'm very glad that yourself and, and Carson and many other, definitely the youth, Definitely the youth, they, they see differently as in like, it is about to facilitate the, um, the decision making process. Um, thank you to elaborate more on uh, that you elaborated on that. Um, how much at COPS or SB, so that in the, in the in intersectional meetings, how much of your time as a chair is spent on conferences and meetings versus uh, making appearances and attending social things like uh, receptions? Um, uh, yeah, during cops for example yeah i think my um my preference is to to be doing the work and and i think like at this point about just grinding it out is uh kind of what i feel is is you know one of uh, the roles of, of the chair is is to like do that work so that folks you know can take advantage of of whatever materializes from that and uh you know often there are some benefits that are associated with like building social relationships with other parties and other actors. Um, but I think that comes after, in my mind, after like doing the work and attending the conferences and the meetings and, you know, being in the hallways with folks and talking about why and how states take certain positions and really trying to understand and build that relationship in a positive way. And then spending the time actually doing the work, you know, organizing the different opportunities and, and you know, really, really getting our voice out there. And I think that's one thing that, that at COP25, like our comms folks, um, Kera and, and Janine and Lindsay and others like did a really, really wicked job is like taking up that space, um, taking up that space in a, in a system that is like quite traumatic to indigenous peoples. And then Claire kind of spoke about, you know, this, this system is built on the erasure of our nations. And so like every act of, of, you know, resilience and resurgence that we have in these spaces, I think is extremely important. And, you know, trying to, trying to make space for that is, is yeah, really, really important and, and was well done at COP25. Um, thanks, Graham. Um, we're running out of time. Um, so maybe anything, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna ask like everyone this single question, uh, but it gives you a little bit more space to, to jam, like, like to talk a little bit anything that we did not touch upon that you really want to talk about or want other things people to think about anything that comes to your mind yeah i'd love to uh i love to think about more like convening our own climate cop and we had spoken about that a couple times in the last you know two or three years um and i, I like it, it kind of comes back to your original question like what has changed and i really think like Part of what's changed is the recognition that, you know, we need to create our own space. 
And one of those things, and, and Frank talks about kind of these indigenously determined contributions, like how do we do that and then invite others into that? And I think there's a really important kind of power dynamic associated with doing that. And so, um, yeah, I'd be really keen to work with folks to think about what that, uh, what that looks like and how do we bring all those different movements together um, to strategize, to coordinate and, and to do our own things. Like, I, I think that's something that that's really important for, for us and for the Indigenous movement writ large is that, you know, we retain the integrity of our voice when we create the space and uh, yeah, want to uh, want to do that. Um, yes, definitely. And Frank will be in um, like, I don't know, two episodes from now and definitely going to talk about the IDC's individually determined uh, contributions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking about Frank, so that's Frank Adwagishik. Um, uh, also like, a, I would say like a rock star. He's, very, he's, he's amazing um, in his, in his uh, the way he talks, the way he interacts with, um, yeah, with youth, with, with people like Graham, myself, and as well as the, um, yeah, the diplomats and the negotiators that I went to talk to. Um, thank you so much, Graham. As always, your uh, beard game is on point um, <laughs> and your hair game as well. Thank you so much I for just that, got though. a cut, yeah. <laughs> yeah, miigwech, miigwech, Ghazali, for opening up this space and like look forward to the, the rest of the episodes. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Graham. Um, Hoka, um, thank you so much as well for, for do, doing the, the last part with, with Tanya. Um, who's next, uh, Hoka? You're on mute. Now, it's okay? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Gasali. Uh, our guest net, uh, our next guest is Daily Sambo. He is Inuit from Alaska. is the international chair of the Inuit Circumpolar Council. She engaged for over thirty-four years as the UN ILO OAS as other international forum. She is a former expert member and chairperson of the UMPFII and specialized in international indigenous human rights law, as well as political and legal relation between states and indigenous people. And is also co-chair of the International Law Association Committee on Implementation of the Indigenous Rights. Welcome, uh, Dali. Dali, welcome. Um... I have to admit, um, when I when I had to chair some meetings as uh, from a caucus, um, one of the persons that I look up to is the way that you uh, handled no not handled the, the way that you chaired the parent forum. That was um, inspirational. Um, so very much thank you for that. Um, let me first jump right into the first question. Uh, what are some of the challenges that you, as um, international chair of ICC, are facing in terms of? governance and, and representation, given that Inuit territory spans across a number of states. Um, yeah, so what do you keep in mind when you're speaking on behalf of, uh, of the ICC? Yana, thank you so much, Ghazali. Uh, first, let me say it's very early in the morning here. I tuned in at 5 a.m. So, and I haven't had a cup of coffee as, a, as I, I thought I might be able to have the chance to this is in the hopes that I can actually fall asleep again. <laughs> um, this, this, the program is excellent. And, and in terms of your specific question, indeed the Inuit, our membership 
our traditional territories and homelands uh, spread from Chukotka and the Russian Far East throughout Alaska, Canada, and Greenland. And I think um, your question uh, really brings to mind the diversity of the respective nation states that we have to deal with, who are, of course, UN member states as well. And um, uh, it is quite significant that uh, the Russian Federation, as a UN member state, but also a member of the Security Council, the United States government, the government of Canada, and the government of Denmark. Um, so not only um, is it the uh, conditions of these very distinct uh, nation states that we have to deal with, that our membership, uh, Inuit, our blood relations across these four countries um, uh, have to deal with, but to be mindful of not only the circumpolar region politics and Arctic region politics, but now global politics in terms of the those respective nation states. And so that's that's a, a major challenge. Um, in addition, um, of course, language and uh, immediately, and I'm, I'm really pleased to see the Spanish speaking um, opportunity here, the interpretation, the technology that supports that, but we, we have real difficulties and challenges with um, the use of the Russian language in our communications with the 2,000 or so uh, Siberian Yupik who are members in Chicago. So that that's significant. Um, the other dimension to all of this is um, the uneven treatment of the rights of our membership across these different national governments. and. I think uh, we go from, for example, the conditions in Greenland um, where there's been peaceful dialogue for some time about the exercise of the right of self-determination and the real future of Greenland, the potential independence of Greenland uh, and the situation and circumstance for our membership in the Russian Federation where there's, um, there's direct and overt control of everything that they, they do in their day-to-day -day lives and they, the ability for them to um, you know, freely take on engagement at the United Nations, for example, or for our organization as the Inuit Circumpolar Council to provide support to them, provide financial support to them uh, without being uh, labeled as as foreign agents, and these are very real uh, challenges. And in terms of your your second question about what what to keep in mind um, when speaking on behalf of the ICC, that's a that's a little easier to deal with because we uh, we have a, a fairly well developed. Uh, leadership process. We have our uh, general assemblies. Uh, our executive council uh, is composed of membership from each of the uh, four regions in uh, the Arctic. Um, we occupy, uh, in terms of our traditional homeland, just over 40% of the Arctic region. 
we view that in a holistic fashion. The decision-making that we undertake is, is collectively and together. So there, there are challenges uh, in terms of representation at the international level, but at the same time, we have a, a very good way of bringing forward the Inuit voice um, in a wide range of intergovernmental and other international forums. Daily, um, <clears throat> I, know, I know for a fact that you're a very strong supporter of the right to self-determination. You talk a lot about that during the, the, in the um, current forum and other, other contexts. Um, having also like uh, listened to, I'll talk to me, um, Professor Megan Davis, uh, your colleague, previous, uh, former colleague at the current forum. Um, she alluded to that we don't talk about self-determination uh, anymore, as, as not as much as, as we should be, and more about uh, free power informed consent, FPIC. Um, what, in, in your mind, in your view, what debates or what do we need to do um, to bring it back? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that it's important for us to recognize that all of the uh, provisions of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples are, are sourced in self-determination, right? Self-determination is understood to be the prerequisite to the exercise and the enjoyment of all other human rights. And so when we are talking about our food security, when we are talking about our rights to lands, territories, and resources, when we are talking about the right to free prior and informed consent, when we're talking about the right to control our own educational institutions, we are really talking about expressing our right to self-determination in many different contexts. And um, so I think that uh, it's, if we understand that free prior and informed consent is sourced in the right of self-determination that uh, it, it takes on and is imbued with uh, an even more uh, significant cultural context on the part of indigenous peoples. Um, I think that it, it really underscores how inseparable self-determination is from every action of advocacy that we as indigenous peoples individually or collectively undertake at, at all different scales, at the local level, at the regional level, the national level, and at the international level. And uh, I think that um, there's been probably more discussion about uh, the right of self-determination uh, in the efforts of indigenous peoples at the national or, or the domestic level. Um, and make, so maybe less so uh, in terms of the huge uh, debates that we had throughout uh, the negotiation of the UN declaration. Um, I heard uh, Kenneth Deere speak earlier about the those significant debates and how much time was consumed on just resolving uh, the issue of the right of self-determination. Um, so potentially at the national and the domestic level where uh, the, the provisions of the UN Declaration or where the rubber hits the road in terms of resolving and, and redefining and reorienting and reconceptualizing the 
relationship between indigenous peoples and nation states that more of this dialogue is taking place. And it's largely because of the denial of the right of self-determination, the, the lack of uh, explicit recognition of and respect for the right of self-determination by national governments that uh, has created um, the need to have a debate, the need to have a discussion. So it, in my view, more power to the indigenous peoples at the local and the national level for bringing these issues forward in a, an intellectually honest fashion and willing to uh, engage in the discussion about how to accommodate indigenous peoples. So, um, Daly, one question actually that's been, been emerging not only in, in, um, in meetings with, with states, but like in general um, is, uh, is about the rights of indigenous people. People don't understand what it is. Well, they do understand, and I'm talking about non-indigenous peoples. Um, what is the biggest mi misunderstanding states have about indigenous peoples' rights? I think that they, that hasn't changed much uh, mm. over the nearly 40, 50, 50 years or however long we've been doing this. I, mean, I, can't, I can't count anymore. Um, um, I think that the, 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 the fear that the sky will fall if in fact they recognize and respect our rights, our, our fundamental human rights. And I think that self-determination is an example of that, that, that the unwillingness to recognize um, uh, the rights of indigenous peoples in, in whatever context and, and, and discrete um, dialogue that may be undertaken, the idea that, um, and maybe it really comes from uh, they don't know any better because they've just taken the attitude that uh, they have the power to decide and uh, impose upon us uh, to control us to own us. You know, you hear that often in statements uh, by uh, for the U.S. is very uh, well known for this that our indigenous peoples. You know this. This um, and that's a big under misunderstanding in and of itself, as though as though we're we're subjects to be owned and um, that they have the power to do with us whatever they want to do, overlooking entirely uh, our our rights, including the right of self determination. Uh, I think that some of the other misunderstandings about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People specifically is that uh, somehow this important international human rights instrument creates new rights. When in fact, we're talking about pre-existing or inherent rights that we have held long before the emergence of the modern nation state uh, in international law, in international affairs. And I think this is another huge uh, misconception, misunderstanding on the part of states that, that these pre-existing or inherent rights um, have been important to indigenous peoples well before contact and that they remain important to 
indigenous peoples and our, our very survival as uh, distinct peoples um, on the planet. So I think that, I, that there are probably many, many other uh, misunderstandings that I could point to, but really in the end of the day, I think that much of it uh, pivots on this notion of um, uh, the, the primacy of the nation state and uh, the primacy of their political institutions in all affairs, uh, political or, or legal or cultural and in, in a wide range of uh, ways. So it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint any one uh, particular misunderstanding, but I think that um, it's pretty clear that there are a wide range of them. Otherwise, indigenous peoples would be enjoying and exercising their human rights. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you're now also a member to the facilitator working group um, on uh, under the UNFCCC, so on, on climate change, um, huh. which is is on the the platform on traditional knowledge. Um, there's a rise, uh, quote unquote, rise of traditional knowledge. UNFCCC, BBNJ, what we also talk about a little bit uh, huh. offline. Um, yeah, there's there's a rise. Are you excited? or concerned? Uh, let's see, first let me say that uh, myself and uh, the Inuit Circumpolar Council and the discussions that we've had about this important topic have settled on the use of the term indigenous knowledge uh, for a, a host of different reasons, a host of different reasons that the, the knowledge that we that we have accumulated certainly is based upon traditional practices, but it also it represents the knowledge that we hold here and now and knowledge that we'll accumulate into the future and that it, it, it attaches to us and our identity as indigenous peoples. Um, I think that it is, um, uh, exciting might not be the term, but, um, I think that it's important that the international community, that the world community, and uh, specifically the um, different uh, treaty arenas that have emerged around us, like the UNFCCC, are interested in indigenous perspectives and in indigenous knowledge. I think it's very, very important, but I don't think that they completely understand what we're talking about, you know, that we, that we have systematic ways of knowing that uh, based upon observations and skill and, you know, um, it, they're not quite sure what we're talking about. And I think in large part because of that, um, it's been extremely helpful for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, for example, to recognize in their special report on oceans in the cryosphere to underscore the significance of the knowledge that Inuit have uh, to sea ice and, and conditions within our unique um, environment, uh, Inuit Nunat, the, the, the environment that we know so much about uh, based upon generations of accumulated and intricate and highly developed and sophisticated knowledge. And um, 
even it, it conjures up the quote from Eben Hobson, who's recognized as the founder of the Inuit Circumpolar Council, who stated in 1977, when we gathered together to organize the ICC, that our language contains the intricate knowledge of the ice that we have seen no others demonstrate. And this remains true to this day. So I think that, um, you know, for now, the IPCC's report and, and um, the opportunity to uplift the knowledge that we do have in order to find solutions to the problems that all of humanity is facing is significant. I am concerned, however, about uh, the idea that, oh yeah, we can just create a big depository of all the knowledge of indigenous peoples and, and make it available for anybody to Google by, by keyword and, and you know, grabbing and taking knowledge out of context and applying it uh, out of context and misusing it, abusing it or exploiting it and the, the notions of Western science and how they treat indigenous knowledge. I'm deeply concerned about that. So when you mention the, the um, local communities and indigenous peoples platform of the UNFCCC and the facilitative working group as a constitutive body uh, in that process that we create the safeguards and protect the rights of indigenous peoples to their knowledge, as well as their, their, their right to maintain and control how that knowledge is used. And that ultimately will allow for real respect for and recognition of indigenous knowledge holders. And so in terms of the future of the co-production of knowledge with indigenous peoples, there's a host of guidelines and protocols that have to be developed in order to really achieve ethical co-production of knowledge. So um, I think there are avenues and opportunities, but at the same time, we need respect for guidelines and protocols and the safeguarding of our knowledge. Thank you so much, Daly. I know we can talk a lot longer about this, uh, but it's very early over, over there. And, um, so hopefully, um, yeah, you brought a lot of value to, 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 to this whole, to this whole, to the whole uh, episode and to the whole series. Thank you so much. And definitely looking forward to talking more about, uh, about uh, like everything that we just talked about. Um, thank, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Yeah. No, thank you, Ghazali. And I hope that before you cut me off, I, I hope that at some point in time we can tackle uh, the issue of uh, local communities, because I think uh, this sure, problematic we have a little yeah. bit more time. So uh, is that um, local communities, uh, Indigenous peoples, what is the nuance? What is it something that you want to tackle on that? Well, I think that um, as has been indicated by the, uh, and Graham uh, was instrumental in this, uh, the, the letter that was sent from the Indigenous Peoples Forum on climate change uh, to um, others within the whole UNFCCC system about the need for a clear and explicit distinction between indigenous peoples and local communities is absolutely crucial. And that letter highlighted uh, the need that, you know, the, the system and in particular nation state, the parties uh, uh, within that treaty cannot equate the rights of indigenous peoples to local communities that there, uh, and in fact, my reference to 
pre-existing or inherent rights is one of the key elements of the distinctions between so-called local communities, and we're not sure who they are and, and where they are. Uh, my guess is that it, it has emerged because there are governments that refuse to accept that there are indigenous peoples within their set state territories. Um, that's a different argument. That's a different matter when you have non-recognition of indigenous peoples. But to, um, to then bring on a term like local communities um, without fully understanding the, uh, the history, the source, the content of the rights of indigenous peoples, the pre-existing rights, the inherent rights of indigenous peoples, especially to self-determination, our collective political right to self-determination, as well as our rights to lands, territories, and resources, um, which is a, a very distinct uh, cluster of rights that is highly significant to indigenous peoples that, um, that a distinction has to be made and it has to be understood in order for us to safeguard um, the, the integrity of the rights that have been affirmed in the UN Declaration, for example. Um, and again, local communities, we're uncertain of, of what's being talked about here. There is no definition. Uh, in the UNFCCC context, um, I haven't seen a, a crowd of uh, local community representatives, you know, have a caucus meeting or a dialogue or a discussion and insert themselves in a way that um, that is significant and important to Indigenous peoples. Um, there's much more that I could say about this, but I do know that you have other uh, guests that you're inviting to the program, but I think it's an area that we have to watch very closely in terms of developments, especially when there's an attempt by others to link rights to uh, so-called local communities and to utilize it in a way uh, that would undermine or diminish the rights, the, the hard-fought rights uh, and the recognition of those rights by the international community in the form of the UN declarations. Um, thank you for allowing me to say a few words about that. But I also, again, Kianak, thank you so no, much. Th thank you so much, Daly. Thank you for interrupting me uh, for, for, so that you can talk about this. Because um, I've been uh, seeing it emerge, uh, the whole uh, discussion all over the world in terms of like the different processes. So I think this is definitely um, uh, very valuable. So thank you so much for, for cutting me off and, and, and talk, talk about this. Um, thank you okay. so much. Yeah. Okay. Appreciate it. Uh, Hoka. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's very exciting to, to listen in our sister Delhi, her wisdom. Ines Guest is Michandra Roy, Henry's consent has led since 2010 the Indigenous People and Development Branch Secretariat of the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues at the United Nations Department for Economic and Social Affairs. Chandra is a lawyer by training with specialization in international law, human rights, and Indigenous people. She received her Bachelor of Law from Punjab University, Pakistan, and her master in law from the American University, Washington, DC, USA. Welcome. 
Um, welcome, welcome, Chandra. Sorry for what we're, um, uh, for, we did run a bit, a little bit over time, but, but like the, the something that Daily wanted to share was very, very interesting. I think also very important for these peoples uh, all around the world to, and non these peoples as well, to, to understand the nuance between local these peoples and, lo and local communities. Um, Chandra, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. First of all, thank you all very much for inviting me to this panel. It's actually been a very interesting and inspiring discussion. And Ghazali, hats off to you for getting this together and doing this series of talks. Really, really looking forward to this. Yeah, well, when I, when I started this web series, um, there was, uh, I have to admit, there was, a there was a list and like on top of the list was Chandra Roy Henriksen. <laughs> um, there's a lot of people, a lot of people go to the Prima Forum and a lot of people uh, try to address the United Nations through the Prima Forum. Uh, but like they don't know uh, like the, 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 the dynamics behind it and who's trying to. Um, I can imagine that is uh, a very challenging role for you to, um, um, sorry, not challenging, demanding, like demands a lot of you and your staff. So if you can, uh, many people do not know, do not have an idea to use the print form effectively. And we're talking about effectiveness uh, in this one. What is the biggest, biggest misunderstanding or do you have any tips um, on for in these peoples on how to make very effective use of the firm form? Well, first of all, you know, it's really good today. I was looking through the list you have of your speakers and it's been excellent to actually see many of the old faces just before me was Daly and she, as you know, was uh, the chairperson of one of the chairpersons of the forum. To say that uh, I always tell my colleagues, and I am very lucky, very privileged, that I have a fantastic team of colleagues who work with me, all of them extremely dedicated, committed. We are kind of like, um, I say that we are like the kabuki dancers, you know, in this Japanese art form, or also in Indonesia, you have the puppets or the real people. And then behind you have the ones who have to make sure that everything goes smoothly. And we are like that, that we can only be as strong in our team, as strong as the permanent forum is. Now the permanent forum, since it started in 2002, was the first session, has been increasing and gaining momentum in recognition. And it has now very much acknowledged, recognized and uh, respected as providing the global uh, forum the global space for indigenous peoples from all around the world to come, voice their concerns, their views, but also engage with the member states and the UN agencies, NGOs, academics, and others. And I believe this is one of the uh, ways that the permanent forum has evolved. I was involved as were many of the others when the permanent forum was first being established. And it has actually come to fruition in that way as that this is what we had envisioned, that it would be at a very high level, there would be engagement, networking, contacts, advocacy. And my first tip, I would say, suggestion to participants who come to the permanent forum is that make sure you use the space use this opportunity, use the connections, use the networking. You, I mean, this year, unfortunately, we could not have the full, have the forum session as it, as in previous years. And it was because the forum members decided in their wisdom that it would be very risky 
to place Indigenous peoples in this kind of a situation with the pandemic raging as it was, and also taking into view the travel restrictions, people going back. So, but for participants who come to the forum, you have the 16 members of the forum who will prepare the report with recommendations to the agencies, member states, but you also have there with you, and the forum has done this with convening power, brought together member states, UN agencies, NGOs, academics, and others. And that's where I believe the permanent forum participants can direct their advocacy and their efforts. Talk to one of the UN agencies. Why is X, Y, and Z not being taken in my country? I'm just uh, thinking uh, earlier, I was listening to Panya in Peru. For instance, the UN system in Peru, what are they doing for indigenous peoples in COVID, if not in COVID, in governance? You know, and this is where you can use that. And we are there to help you make these appointments, these. Uh, discussions and we're happy to do so for you. Thank you so much, uh, um, uh, Chandra, because um, yeah, a lot of people think that it's just about sitting in a chair, for, uh, waiting for your three minutes and then, and then leave, but there is so much more things that you can do. And like you said, make use of the, the platform and uh, be in the room and making connections. And so thank you so much for really emphasizing that. Um, Burn Forum was supposed to, be, uh, supposed to be held, of course, COVID-19 happened. Take us through the process uh, of learning that perform was was postponed, and yeah, like, and because yeah, what what it, did you what did you think? Like, would it become a, a negative impact on any of these people's advocacy? What what were your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, you know, to postpone a event of such importance and such magnitude, it's a very serious decision. And uh, we were, I'll just take you through, in, I mean, chronologically, in February, the permanent forum members, there's a new, new, um, new 12 members and four continuing members. They organized at the invitation of the Finnish government and the parliament of uh, the Sami parliament in Finland, they, they went for a pre-sessional meeting in Finland, in Inari. And this was at the beginning of February. And already then the coronavirus had started. In fact, there was also one case in Inari, in the, I mean, in um, Finland where we were. And as when we came back to New York, it just grew exponentially, the virus. And the first meeting that was, I mean, even larger than the permanent forum session in a way is the Commission on the Status of Women. And that was supposed to be the first week of March, and that had to be postponed, which meant that this would have repercussions for the other meetings. And we then relayed this to the permanent forum members, and we had to do it virtually like this with tele, um, telecoms and all, and said that this is the situation, what would you what do you think should happen? And we are here. We, of course, from the UN, the Secretary General himself had our offered guidance that in this kind of situation, it would be very irresponsible for the UN to convene large gatherings where you cannot guarantee the safety and security of the participants coming and leaving or being able to return to their countries. And then the aftermath of what happens in the countries they return to. 
And for indigenous peoples, and this was very much picked up by the permanent forum members, that many of the indigenous participants who come to the forum come from very remote and often isolated communities. They come, you meet in this huge gathering of 1200 people plus, and then you go back to your communities. And as you know, with this pandemic, it's very difficult to know where it is, how it's very hidden and it's very insidious. And so the permanent forum members decided that this would not be the right situation, the right context in which to organize the annual session. And they decided that this would not take place as had been originally planned. It was with great, uh, they gave it extremely serious consideration. Of course, we offered our advice, our suggestions, and it was thus decided that they would not have the permanent forum session. Now, I just want to mention that internally, there are all these procedural uh, issues that also have to be discussed. And we relate this back to the forum members because we were trying to see if it would be possible to have one later in the year. Of course, as you know, the situation has evolved to such stage. It's not, it's very difficult to foretell any of that. However, we wanted to make sure that the permanent forum session for next year was firmly in place. So the forum members then prepared the agenda, the discussions, the dates, and they have actually forwarded this to the Economic and Social Council, which is their parent body. And it has been adopted and agreed by the Economic and Social Council. So the next session is firmly in place for April 19 to 30, 2021. Hopefully it will be able to take place. But as you know, it's still very much uncertain in terms of the circumstances as and when there will be a virus or the situation will be resolved to the, for the safety and security of all. Well, thank, thank you so much, uh, Chandra, for, for laying that all out so that people understand like, that it's not an easy decision that, that the, the, the Secretariat mm -hmm. and, and the members had to make, but it was a well-thought-over um, yeah, well decision, not an easy decision, definitely not. Um, zooming in a little bit on, like, on the UN and like, Indian peoples, uh, what are you sensing then um, that's going to happen within the United Nations that will potentially impact or might have an impact on Indigenous governance or maybe diplomacy? Any, any, any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, the UN is also looking at how the UN has been for the last 75 years. And now the first thing you have to remember, <clears throat> and this was brought up by some of the earlier participants, that a lot of the decisions are actually taken by member states. However, indigenous peoples play a very, very important role in terms of advocacy, lobbying, advocating for their rights, voicing their concerns. And now, of course, we have the 2030 development agenda. And the basic principle of that is to leave no one behind. However, from the uh, anecdotal and evidence-based analysis that, has, that is coming up, it says that yes, indigenous peoples will be among those who are most likely to be left behind. So in this kind of scenario, there are entry points. You have the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, 2007, and it was prepared, adopted at, I believe it was the Indigenous Peoples who made it happen. Indigenous Peoples also made happen. There was a World Conference on Indigenous Peoples in 2014. Ghazali, you were very much involved in that. 
And uh, as a result of the 2014 World Conference, there is a system-wide action plan on the rights of indigenous peoples. Now linked to that, there is also a current process which is going on about changing the way the UN works and making it more relevant and more actual. We have to remember that this was 75 years ago and now you have, it's a different environment we work in. So the UN is also trying to respond to this. The UN is doing its best to be agile and flexible. It's a huge, huge bureaucracy. It is uh, decisions are taken by member states. So it sometimes takes a while to get things moving. We got the declaration after 20 years, the World Conference in 2014, and now you have the system-wide action plan. You have the 2030 development agenda, which makes specific references to indigenous peoples. Only happened because indigenous peoples, with the support of member states, made it into the actual uh, outcome documents. Now you have these opportunities and with the development reform process that is ongoing and from our team, and that's one of the effects of that is our team has actually been increased. We are now the Indigenous Peoples and Development Branch. Earlier we were only for the Secretariat as of the Permanent Forum. And the reason for that is because we are actually being called upon to do more not just for the forum, but additional to. We always did that earlier, but now with the system of action plan, the 2030 agenda, it's become much more prominent and much more um, in demand. So because of that, using these entry points, the development system also has to change. Take more uh, cognizance, be more take more recognition and actually action for indigenous peoples, wherever they may be. And with the 2030 agenda, one of the advantages compared to the MDGs, when indigenous peoples were invisible, is that with the 2030 agenda, it is only, it is not just for developing countries, it is universal in application. And thus indigenous peoples, wherever they may be, whether they're in Norway, Sweden, Finland, Alaska, or US or Canada, Australia, or in, uh, Peru or um, Kenya or wherever, this is all related and that they should be able to be more responsive to this. Forgot to put me on, on unmute. Um, th thank you, uh, Chandra. Um, quickly, like what, what we're seeing now is COVID exposes uh, like also the, the hyper-transparency of the, of the world around us, uh, except for diplomacy. Um, which is still very closed, rel relatively closed. Um, do you see any anywhere, like uh, where do you see the need for transparency and, and where not? Uh, you know, COVID has taken everybody unawares. Nobody was prepared, prepared for a pandemic of this scale. And you actually, it shows us how interrelated everything is and everyone is that, you know, there's one sneeze in, uh, some remote area in one of the isolated communities. And then this goes off all the way to, let's say the major cities of New York and, uh, and Paris. We, for instance, uh, I'm based in New York, the UN is here. And this has been the hardest hit when it first struck. Now, the, in terms of indigenous peoples, and we have just to mention that we have uh, opened up a web 
uh, page on our uh, UN DESA site for Indigenous peoples to send in their questions and their experiences and their uh, advocacy and messages and we're putting that up there. For Indigenous peoples, they are very often uh, not included in the COVID responses or if they are included, it is not to the extent that they need to be. And we are hearing alarming reports of medical facilities not being available in Indigenous communities. Now, already Indigenous peoples face major challenges in accessing uh, medical facilities. Now, with COVID, this has made it even worse. And in some countries, it is to such extent that you have Indigenous peoples trying to do what they can themselves in their communities, but it is not enough. And of course, for that, we have actually been talking to the UN system. And we have prepared from our team, and there's an interagency support group on Indigenous uh, peoples uh, from the, all the UN agencies. And they are the ones who have prepared guidance for the UN country teams to say that when you work on COVID responses, you must make special efforts, otherwise you do not include Indigenous peoples. And in this, the very important is Indigenous women who are among those who are the hardest hit and indigenous youth and children. And in just a quick uh, commentate, comment that for indigenous children now with the COVID and distance learning, they have not been able to access that because they don't have commuter, computers. And if they do have computers, Wi-Fi is not available in their villages. So it is kind of like a double jeopardy in a way that first wherever they are school they don't have the facilities for distance learning and these are all issues that are very very urgent very real in terms of also food security and the reports of hunger in many of the indigenous communities thank you so much chandra um any any final thoughts uh, so something that we didn't talk about that you, that you really want to um, address or uh, want pe English people to think about? Two things. One is to do a little bit of propaganda because, you know, with COVID, sure. 9th August is the International Indigenous Peoples Day. And the theme for this year's uh, commemorative event, which will be held on the 10th of August in the morning, virtually, will be on the pandemic and indigenous peoples. And we want to show how indigenous peoples are not really sitting and waiting for things to come to them, because in many cases, they are not coming. They are taking matters in their own hand. But what has been the response of the member states? What has been the response of the UN system in, in helping with that? That's one thing. The other one I wanted to just say is that for indigenous peoples, and I think Azali, you mentioned it, that coming to the UN, making a speech, has an impact, but that is not the impact only of your presence at UN meetings. And it's not just at the UN here in New York, it's when you go to Geneva, when you go to Rome, when you go to Nairobi or to wherever the UN has a presence. Make sure that you go and talk to the UN people, UN colleagues who are there. They have to listen to you, make an appointment, talk to them, lay your concerns out, but also in the same time, when you have the opportunity, engage with member states, talk to them, explain to them. And in the discussions this morning, I was listening a lot and 
how clearly the message was getting across that indigenous peoples have the right to self-determination. They also want to have the right to determine their own priorities and take part in the episode and take part in the discussions and the decisions as to what is their development priorities and how they can be involved and participate to make sure that the UN Declaration is a reality. We, fought, we were 20 years struggling for that, we have it now. Make sure it is used and implemented and helps indigenous peoples all over the world. Thank you so much, Chandra, uh, for your time. I know you're very busy. Um, um, it's very early right now in New York. Um, be it's safe. Early, um, uh, uh, you're working from home now, or are you? Yeah, we're okay. all working from um, home. They're trying to see how they can, how and when they can go back. But Ghazali, always here for you all. And thank you very much for having me. And anytime, just, we you know, we're all here, not just me, also my team, my colleagues, fantastic colleagues, all here for you. Thank you. Thank, stay thank safe. you so much, Chandra. Thank you. Yes, you too, and your team as well. Holka, um, that's it. Um, unfortunately, uh, we, uh, Mr. Belkasen Lunes was not able to participate, so we're hoping that we can bring him to the, uh, one of the next episodes. Um, uh, so what do you think? Your first time as um, like um, hosting uh, with me the, this, 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 um, this webinar series, um, what do you think? Uh, thank you, Gazali. It, it has been inspired challenge to hear about struggle on various issues such as self-determination, pointing out and remembering that the rights of indigenous people is not new, uh, it's very ancestral, very millenarian, that, they will, that we are recognized in the forums of indigenous nations is another point. Uh, that the rights of indigenous people is an ancient matter, the importance of the conclave, facilitation, empowerment of indigenous brothers and sisters, uh, courage and important youth participation, but also intergenerational inter uh, relationships. Uh, the challenges of the COVID-19 and the ancestral knowledge is a proposal in our nation, but also to continue working the public incidents uh, in the policies that include the proposal of the way of the organization, medicine from the indigenous worldview, uh, the importance of looking for other alternatives to continue working in the midst of the struggle of indigenous people, even so, though we cannot meet in permanent forums, a path that is necessary that the new generation continue to embrace from the wisdom of grandmother and grandfather. I think it's very important that uh, all our sisters and brothers say we need to continue to be united and to understand uh, we are uh, indigenous people very specific in our context but we have uh, the same struggle and uh, if we continue working together uh, we are resistant and resilient for many many centuries and now it's, it's time to continue to be together thank you Gasali. i don't know if you understand what i tried to say but muchas gracias No, th thank you. I, I understood it very well. And thank you for, like, for the recap of everything. Um, so, yeah, final word to you uh, to say, um, yeah, to say that the, you, you're a moderator. So I'll give you the final words. Uh, thank you so much, our sister Chandra, the last one, and everyone. 
Kenneth, uh, uh, all of my sister and brother, because we are together. And gracias a la gente que está viendo en Facebook. Thank you for people uh, follow us in Facebook. Spanish people to había uh, ya uh, la people from Facebook, la gente de the Facebook. Muchas gracias. And Gazali, we need to continue. And like a youth woman, I think our sister and brother challenged me a lot. Thank you so much. Hey, guys, before you go, two things. One, thank you so much for listening. As always, really appreciate it. And number two, um, we're coming back August 21st with episode six of the How to Indigenous Governance and Diplomacy for the Now webinar series. Um, go to linktree slash gomaluku for the details and to RSVP. Um, you have seen the, the first five episodes with the one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, episodes six, seven, and eight will be totally different. We'll, we will be flipping the format into a Q&A show um, where all the panelists from the previous five episodes are invited back to answer questions in a much more detailed, slower uh, format. Uh, we can go deep, very deep, contextually deep even and covered everything within the topics of indigenous governance, um, diplomacy, and the enhanced participation process. Um, the only thing that we need are your questions. Feed us your questions. Here's how you can submit one. Um, tweet your question with the hashtag HowToIndigenousNow and tag at Gomaluku or go to facebook.com slash G-O-H-O-R-E-L-L-A and post your question over there. Our team will review everything that comes in and pick a few of you in advance to be on either of the three shows to ask your burning question. See you there on August 21st. This is the Gomaluku Podcast. <laughs>